Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. I'm so excited to get into this second episode with Stephen Pally. He is a litigation partner and co-chair of Brown Rudnick's Digital Commerce Group. Stephen is a seasoned litigator with over 20 years of extensive courtroom experience. He has written extensively and been quoted widely on legal issues arising from the use of blockchain technology with appearances in both print and television media. If you actually go on YouTube, you can find videos from years and years ago when he was speaking in Berlin and other places around the world to audiences that I'm sure were much smaller than they are today. Earlier this year, uh, Brown Rudnick, the firm that Stephen is partner at, was selected to represent the official committee of unsecured creditors in the Chapter 11 case of BlockFi. And Stephen is also representing Zach XPT in a lawsuit. He previously joined the Law of Code podcast for episode 28. So if you don't have uh, his background, I think that would be a great place to start to hear his thoughts on crypto regulation, his early career and defining decentralization. So I'll link that in the show notes. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me again. Such a pleasure to be here. So what episode number is this? This is, I'm not sure what this will be when it comes out. It might be 110, I think. Oh my gosh. I mean, I just like, congratulations to you. Uh, and it's an absolute honor and privilege to be back. Well, thank you. Thank you. And it's a, the honor is, is all mine. I'm really looking forward to this. And in preparation, I was watching the hot topics in blockchain law discussion that you had from June 2023. It was a great discussion. But I love the analogy of the dumpster, and you've given it many times on Twitter, and people see you as you know, speaking on dumpsters. But I don't think, I think many people, it's lost on them the importance of this analogy and why you give this, because it really does a good job of framing how ridiculous some concepts could be when you use a tangible example. And in the case you gave, you know, you discuss how the dumpster is placed on Veers Mill Road by an anonymous person with two holes in it. On one side, you can place one currency. On another side, you take out another currency. Is the dumpster subject to the jurisdiction of the court? And before we get into those specific questions, I'd love to just hear when the dumpster first came to your mind. Well, when I was an undergraduate studying Boccaccio, who was a progenitor of Chaucer, Sort of in early English literature, there is a significant amount of attention to the concept of the dumpster. No, I'm just kidding. It's just, I, you know, I thought it was funny. Uh, the notion of, you know, leave me cash in a brown bag behind a dumpster. I don't know why I think it's funny, but I do. And I, uh, I think I might have mentioned this in the last podcast. You know, how did it come up? I just, I'm kind of a, in some ways a frustrated poet. Now, like not very good either. And I just sometimes say things on Twitter and don't realize that people are actually reading it. And I think the concept of leaving cash in a brown bag behind a dumpster, there's something about it that seemed funny to me and still does. So the thing is, you realize as you get older, too, and as you become a dad and you learn dad jokes, like jokes, jokes get funnier the more you tell them. Right. At least to me as a father. So there was no great deep reason why I picked the dumpster. I just thought it was funny. Well, I think it's good. And, and what adds to the humor is the different roads that the dumpster can be on. Right when people think they have you on Colesville, you switch it, it goes, up on them. It goes to Veers Mill. Right? Yep. These are actually like, so I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, right outside of uh, D.C. And uh, these are roads in D.C. And Colesville Road is a, it kind of goes from being sort of like, it's in Silver Springs, so it's sort of urban. And then it turns into sort of, I don't know, it kind of reminds me some of like the, the, uh, the strip balls of my youth, you know, where are the snows of yesteryear, where are the Applebee's of yesteryear? There's something about it that's kind of quintessentially American in a way. Veers Mill Road, on the other hand, very different vibe than Coles, Colesville Road. There used to be a mill too, I'm sure, back in the 19th century. 
So it, it is it is all to say that this this dumpster can be a helpful analogy when thinking of something like a smart contract that is put out in the world. People can choose to interact with it. They can choose not to. In, yeah. in the case of the dumpster, right, a lot of the questions have arisen in, in areas like tornado cash, right? Is the dumpster property? Who is responsible for the actions that happen when people interact with the dumpster? You know, is it the individual who put the dumpster there? Is it the dumpster manufacturer? Is it the builder of the road to the dumpster? How do you think in light of this analogy, the correct regulation could look like? Have you thought about what actions should be regulated or where there should be some responsibility pinned to people involved in the dumpster? Well, I might have had a bet about whether I could work the term dumpster into that webinar, but actually, <laughs> that aside, it, it does kind of work. It gets you thinking about that. So we don't know how it got there, but it's on someone's property. Does it suddenly become the landowner's property? Let's say it's not to pick on Applebee's, but let's say like a random dumpster is suddenly on Applebee's property and people are using it for you know, exchanging currency, would they be responsible for that? You know, maybe, maybe not. Would they be, there'd be questions about intent. If a municipality wanted to remove it, there are all sorts of ordinances or laws they could use. You might also be able to use something like if, if it just is suddenly there and it's not yours, you know, maybe something like a, a, a common law nuisance theory might apply. As to a smart contract, I mean, the question there is, and this is, there's not a lot that happens in law that's new, right? We can always find precedents, but it is really interesting to think about the existence of a thing that's sitting on a distributed database for which nobody has control and which is massively distributed. You know, there are thousands or tens of thousands of copies of it sitting in computers all around the world. Can you, can you actually sanction a thing? You know, how do you do that? Are you going to use some sort of in rem theory? The, the notion that uh, soft that a smart contract is a, a person doesn't make any sense. And this is an area where I think you know we have to rethink maybe notions of what it means for something to be a thing subject to the jurisdiction of a court. I don't I don't know if that that wasn't really a satisfactory. I have to say, I listened to my to myself say that, and it doesn't feel satisfactory to me. Right. Well, I'll ask a better question then, because I think it is a, it's a very broad question. Let's talk a bit more about the nuisance argument. And I thought that was really interesting because I had never heard anyone mention that when you discussed it in that space. So when you speak of in rem versus in persona, right, you would sanction what's actually occurring, right? And the public nuisance is interesting because typically in a tangible property, you would see the dumpster. The dumpster would be on the road. It would be in the way. Whereas a smart contract, there, there's a bit of a distinction there, right? Where you would go to it, but it wouldn't necessarily hold a specific place in the world, or would it? Oh, it's maybe it's everywhere. I mean, for something to be a public nuisance, what it has to, it has to unreasonably interfere with the right common to the general public, which is a concept that's been parsed by, you know, courts for a very long time. And maybe that doesn't work for a dumpster. Maybe it doesn't work for a smart contract. But I got to believe that there is a uh, there's a tort of some kind that's out there, and the concept of of in rem as opposed to in personam is interesting too because it is, as you know, it is possible. I'm assuming this is true in Canada as well. It's possible in the United States to sue property. The government does it all the time. You know, so there are cases. You know, United States versus you know 1,347.38 you know Bitcoin. So I think. What we don't have is a satisfactory regulatory or legal response to a thing over which no one has control and which exists everywhere. It seems like the idea of the government going after websites uh, that provide access to that functionality doesn't really make much sense because ultimately it can become a game of whack-a-mole. One website goes down, another one goes up. And then what happens if the website is deployed from, uh, from something like IPFS, right? How do you – are you going to be um, – are you going to be blocking this at the at the ISP level? That can't make sense. So I think we need to rethink. We need to rethink the notion of I think you know responsibility and also a question about maybe from a policy standpoint what the government should actually be focusing on. A dumpster obviously doesn't make sense to say that if if a, a random dumpster suddenly shows up in a parking lot 
and people are using it to exchange money. It doesn't make sense to say that the dumpster is a money transmitter or that the, you know, or if uh, people are using it for nefarious purposes, that the dumpster should be a sanctioned person. Those concepts don't make sense. It's there's a mismatch. Well, I like you, you included responsibility there too, right? Where if you're the people sending money to either sanctioned individuals, then that's where the rules are in place to, to act, right? They, they want to stop from the specific action, not necessarily from the platform on which that action is taken, but that's historically the approach they've taken because that is the easier path to take. Yeah, it's almost like, again, this is like, this is not perfect, but let's just, uh, you know, think about the printing press. It would be like sanction a printing press because it's right. being used to do something that's somehow nefarious. I was, I've been thinking about the printing press recently too. Did we talk about this on our last chat? I can't remember. But, you know, what's interesting about the technology too is, and I know you want to talk about ChatGPT. We could talk about this a little bit more, but there's a direct line between the printing press, the Protestant Reformation, you know, the split between the development of the Church of England and the split with the Vatican. Luther, you know, when he posted his screen, which I, I don't mean screed in a pejorative term, if there are any Lutherans out there, I just can't remember what it was called. When he made that post on the door of the church, the reason uh, that the you know Vatican wasn't able to shut him down, like it would have been able to, you know, a century ago if it had found out about it. And again, this is not, just to be clear, if anybody is listening to this, I'm not taking a side on this uh, age-old theological uh, dispute. It was widely distributed because of the printing press, which meant that uh, people in control in Germany at the time were able to, you know, muster support around Luther. Now, nobody, I'm sure Gutenberg didn't think at the time uh, the printing press was created that this was going to, like, create a, you know, a massive, it wasn't, he didn't think it was going to lead to, uh, you know, the Reformation and the Enlightenment, right? It was just like something that could allow people to print more stuff. And I think that's, if someone at the time had limited the utility of that printing press and had imposed really onerous regulations on it, you know, history would have turned out differently. And we, you and I probably wouldn't, we wouldn't exist. Right. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, at least with respect to you, the world would be poorer for that. So I, I think we have to, we have to think about, maybe we need to think about something like smart contracts in that way, we need to think of, we need to think of it as like a, it's a widget, and what you shouldn't you should be controlling conduct of people who use the widget, but not the availability or use of the widget itself. That strikes me as like let's set aside the legal arguments for a second. Although we're lawyers from a policy standpoint, does that really make sense? Is that really what we want to be doing? Do we want to be you know preventing the enlightenment? I don't. And I think we have to be more, yeah, we need to be more optimistic about people's, our ability to use technology intelligently, I think. And anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I interrupted. No, no, no. I'm so glad you raised the point of the printing press because I think everyone harkens back to the internet and says what the internet did to information. That's what crypto will do and the blockchain will do to value, right? Disseminate it and give anyone the ability to contribute to it. It's a bit different, right? Yeah, it is. And uh, look, I love crypto. And the first time I saw Bitcoin, I, you know, it, it made a profound impact. I mean, it, it changed my life, you know, professionally, personally. That's just a fact. I'm not being like, a, this is not rah-rah cheerleading. I'm just recognizing that. But I think uh, I see uh, sort of emergent AI as more analogous to uh, the creation of the internet or the printing press than crypto. Crypto is something that there's some interesting overlaps that we'll see. Uh, but I, I think from a sort of quantum leap standpoint, uh, they'll have different impacts on sort of the you know, future trajectory of humanity. Yeah, and crypto is interesting because you do have this ability to create scarcity in a manner that previously was not possible. And with scarcity, it's much easier for people to attribute value to those assets, whatever shape or form that they may be. Yeah, let's unpack that. I'd, yeah. Let me turn it around on you. What do you what do you mean by that? Like I know what the words mean, but like practically, tangibly, what 
What does that mean? I think the best example is when you think of something like the Mona Lisa. Anyone can print off a copy. Anyone can paint a ex- almost exact look like. But the original hanging in the Louvre is the most valuable one. All the other ones are relatively worthless comparatively. And that's because the original one more or less authenticated and is known to be that original. And thus we subjectively import value to that. And now if you take that principle and you apply it to other things, NFTs, for example, you can see where all these things that we value, it's it's very subjective. And there's no reason in my mind why that exists in the physical world with tangible objects and it can't exist in the digital space. I... So really, I mean, there's some, it's an interesting philosophical question. Let's say hypothetically, I'm not going to mention dumpsters again, but if we could create a, uh, you know, atomically at an atomic level, an identical Mona Lisa, you know, I guess people would still like the original more. I don't, the NFTs, like I, I, I get it. I get the idea of uh, uniqueness, uh, connecting a digital asset to something in the real world, certificates of authenticity and stuff. Honestly, I haven't I haven't seen much about that technology that I find that connects with me. I don't understand. And again, maybe I'm just you know, maybe I'm just old. But I don't understand why somebody would pay 150 grand for an NFT of a monkey cartoon. It makes zero sense to me. And I personally suspect that a good deal of the activity in that space has been money laundering. I I'm gonna get have... some hate. I'm going to get some hate mail for that, but I, you know, I don't, I don't fucking get it. Yeah, no. And I'm, I'm not going to disagree with you on, on any of those points. I think the way I'm looking at it was imagine say they say they're going to burn the Mona Lisa, but then they're going to issue an NFT to represent the Mona Lisa going forward, regardless of your thoughts on the art and whether that's a huge mistake or not. Can you see that NFT of the Mona Lisa having value going forward and other people believing that it has value compared to any other NFT? Well, Somebody once explained to me when I asked why a particular digital asset had gone up in value, he said, it's simple, Steve, more buyers than sellers. Sure. Yeah. In a, in a hypothetical or real world, could I see it going up in value? Yeah. I mean, you know, the other word that I bandy about on Twitter quite a lot is the word dipshit. People are kind of dipshits. So I can imagine a world where people would be like, yeah, like I want, I want a token that says that I... I don't know what it is that they would own, but I'm sure the idea of a Mona Lisa token would be valuable to somebody. I don't know why, uh, but, you know, each to their own, right? No accounting for taste. Fair, fair. I, like, I, I, have a, I have a, in, the, uh, in one of the bookshelves behind me, I've got a couple binders full of baseball cards and a huge box of uh, vintage comic books. I also, like... I still print stuff out to mark it up. I, I use like, I'll mark things up on, you know, on my computer as well. But I like, I like things that are tangible and that can be held in or physical. And, you know, I guess for some people, the aesthetic is different. But I have on my wall, I've got a beautiful copy of a Jackson Pollock print. And, you know, would it be nice to have the original? That's probably worth of that one, 25 million bucks. Sure. But I'm perfectly happy with the copy. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's an interesting area. And I think as more and more of our lives move to the digital space, having an ability to show off and, and prove that you are fit in a certain class based on the authentication of your NFT, it w- will be interesting whether or not it should have value. I think that's a, that's a long conversation and a philosophical one, but it, it's something that yeah. is happening. So the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was licensing regimes. And we spoke quite a bit on that in the first conversation that we had on crypto and and possibly licensing engineers and what that could look like. And when you think, just to talk on securities laws for a second in general, right, those are about consumer protection, protections in the form of disclosures to investors through various categories of regulated documents, prospectuses, and then also protections that arise from licensing, which we call registration. You know, you explained your opinion on licensing in the digital asset space, whether for developers, protocols, or other stakeholders. And then there was an article that was published in the MIT Technology Review in late 2022, where you were quoted answering the big question now is whether a DeFi front end should be required to get a license from the government. And we've spoken a little bit about this already, but your response 
I thought was apt. And it was, if I create a website and all it does is give people the ability to interact with software that somebody else created that exists on a global distributed database that they could interact with themselves already, how have I created a securities exchange? And I'd love if you could expand on that thought on why giving people a tool to make an exchange they were going to or could do either way is a bit different. Yes. I mean, I think you have to go back to, you know, the 1930s and think about what an exchange. I mean, in the United States, securities exchanges are governed by the Securities Exchange Act. And at the time, exchanges were, you know, physical places where People interacted and sold stuff. There were places where people met, and the uh, the sort of all the operative functionality was there. The intermediaries were there, or were nearby, or were connected in the physical, tangible world. You couldn't. You needed all of that. And here we have. There was nothing. There was nothing like like a, a passive website that could provide access. I think we need to. Trying to take uh, the World Wide Web and fit that functionality into a circa 1930s regulatory regime doesn't make sense, which isn't to say, by the way, uh, that we should be blind to risks that new technology creates. It's just that using a hundred year old regulatory regime, you're, you know, you're trying to like uh, fix a pothole with, you know, with scotch tape or a hammer, you're using the wrong tools to fix a problem. And, you know, crypto has problems, right? There are all manner of scurrilous people, uh, rug pulls and all sorts of uh, financial improprieties. And also we're dealing with experimental technology that breaks. So there should be ways to deal with that. I just, I come back to the notion of, you know, in the Ukidao case where I uh, was co-counsel with Alex Golubitsky and worked with Gabe Shapiro and others that, you know, with LexPunk to put together a, an amicus brief, you know, the CFTC got a default judgment that they may use to get, you know, a website shut down. How they're going to do that, it's not, not entirely certain, but the underlying functionality is still out there. I don't know how many people are actually using that protocol, but shutting down website, again, it's it's a game of whack-a-mole. And I don't think that an approach that that uh, purports to regulate passive websites, it just doesn't, it doesn't do much to answer uh, sort of the underlying or resolve underlying risks. And that was something I didn't fully understand um, when you had first alluded to the whack-a-mole, because my thinking was, well, what these sort of exchanges or the front ends do is the same thing that a exchange in the traditional sense means it makes it easier for people to uh, meet and match orders and, and conduct business in that manner, just like what happened when we went from telephonic trading to the internet trading. But it's different, right, in the case of the whack-a-mole, because when it comes to, say, the the New York Stock Exchange, you just can't go and set up another front end to plug into the New York Stock Exchange. You'd have to build that whole exchange, whereas now you can actually just do it with that website. Well, and, and the, the interaction isn't dependent on the website. The, the matching, the trading, the website makes interacting with, think of it as server-side software, easier, but it can happen. You can do it from the command line. You can do it using Etherscan, and so that's that's the um, that's the issue. There's another. I don't really love the term regulation by enforcement, but I think you know we can use it. I think the other problem that I have is the sort of ad hoc uh, treatment of these things by you know by by the enforcement arms of agencies as opposed to a uh, more uh, wholesome and thoughtful regulatory scheme like it'd be nice if there's a path to compliance it would be very nice and i think everyone would benefit from that when you look at the actions that we've seen against particular assets and things the investors holding those tokens were the ones who were harmed and this was done in to in investor protection I, yes yeah <laughs> I, I think that's a, that's a, that's a, a point that i think many holders of assets would uh, you know, I think many folks would agree with that position. 
So I, I want to just dive in a little bit more on licensing and sort of the alternative position that could be taken if you if a government does say, hey, setting up a front end that can make it easier for you to act with a smart or interact with a smart contract on the back end is considered a securities exchange and that position is taken and sort of implemented around the world. Is there a slippery slope there? What what's the worst case scenario that could happen if you sort of extrapolate on that? Well it could make individual peer-to-peer peer-to-peer transactions significantly more difficult. And if we go back to sort of first principles, the notion of Bitcoin, the idea is I can translate transact with you financially without using intermediaries in the conventional sense. Obviously, you know, there we've got miners. There are parties involved in it, but at least from a sort of financial standpoint, it's you and me doing business. And I think there's a real opportunity for that, the notion of that peer-to-peer exchange to be to be chilled. Also, I worry about the ability for people to innovate without, you know, overly invasive government regulation. I those are very good points. And whenever you have these middlemen, they can act as gatekeepers and then shut people out of the system. We've seen examples of that in Canada, at least in the crypto space with issues with some clients getting banking. I know it's been a problem across the US as well. And and the fact that we can move forward from that to me seems like an amazing opportunity. One question I just wanted to, to ask you was about how this space has progressed. You've been in the space for years now. Has it progressed in a manner you expected it would? I could imagine when you first saw Bitcoin, like you said, it really had a profound impact on you. Based on what's happened over the past few years, is it night and day compared to what you were expecting or is it not too far off? That's a really interesting question. I'm not sure what my expectations were. I mean, it kind of goes back to why I thought crypto was interesting. I liked the idea of contract automation parametric insurance. I was trying to build a dispute resolution platform and I didn't want to be a financial intermediary. You know, what I haven't seen, part of it is what I'm interested in. I didn't start my life out as a securities lawyer or derivatives lawyer. You know, I I handle matters that that touch on those areas of law. You know, my, my core competency is someone who, you know, deals with problems and disputes and, you know, you Learn the areas of law that you need to learn. What I haven't seen as much of as I guess I had expected was product beyond trading stuff. And I'm not a trader and I never have been, which is why I still drive. I think I made this joke last time, a 2007 Kia Sedona. You know, I'm sure my wife and my kids would be happier if I, if I was a trader. I could have a nice cabin up in Canada and, you know, come visit you. But Product that that's really it. I honestly like. I think contract automation, smart contracts. There is a lot of really interesting work that can be done there. There's interesting work that can be done there in dispute resolution. I feel like people got distracted is the right word, but people got distracted by the lore of easy money. You know, number go up, and it's not that I find money boring, but that just was never that interesting to me. I thought I would see more of that. I thought I would see more things like ether risk and, you know, uh, automatic, you know, cat bonds that paid automatically. Uh, and I think uh, that that's kind of, I, I didn't think that 90% of the conversations that I have about crypto would be about US securities and derivatives laws or money transmission. It feels like every lawyer chat that I'm in about crypto, all we do is talk about Howie and you know financial regulation and it's really interesting stuff and I'm glad to be part of those conversations but that was never the thing that got me interested in crypto I mean it's a, been a great I've, I've learned a ton and I feel like it's a like I've been practicing for 25 years one of the things I love about this uh, this is going to sound cheesy and cliched I just love learning new shit I always have. And it's been just an absolute blessing, privilege, whatever the fuck you want to call it, to continue to learn new stuff. But if we could talk a little bit less about, you know, 
trading, financial regulation. That'd be cool. I'm looking forward to that. Like product. Let's talk about products that can make people's lives easier. Let's talk about dispute resolution. And by the way, it doesn't need to have a DAO and it doesn't need a token. Like let's talk about how we can use automatic distributed contracts to do that shit. Like let's let's talk about it's almost like the uh, you know the iPhone or the Mac products are always Apple products are always built from product out. Like you you sort of build like the utility that you want out. You you Wizard of Oz it and then you sort of build the underlying functionality. And I feel like that's where there are some really interesting opportunities. People who can do that instead of like creating another market for liquidity pools and tokens. It's unbelievable how many projects need to have a token and need to launch that token in exchange for an investment. <laughs> Somebody once said to me, uh, this was in like, gosh, this was 2017. There was somebody who was doing something with a token. I was like, you know, why do you need a token? And he laughed. <laughs> Very lovely foreign accent, which I won't try to imitate. He said, Steve, everybody needs a token. And I just, you know, I don't really think that that's true. It's not a critique. It's more of a, I don't know, like, do we really need another DeFi liquidity pool bonding curve dollar go up thing? Like, I'm all for people making money, and I'm not saying, like, don't do things that are perfectly legal to make money, but I'm also saying, like, can we can we see some cool product that doesn't involve trading? That'd be cool. Insurance. If anybody is listening to this, wants to talk about contract automation and insurance or cat bonds, I, I would love to talk more about that. That's I think there's so much to be done there. Well, let's let's chat about insurance. There was a, a friend of mine who I was sort of speaking with uh, about a year ago, and, and they were working in the parametric space, uh, oh, parametric really cool. insurance with smart contracts and oracles relating to forest fires in Canada. Yeah. And how cool. you can have respondents and, and you can trust information much more and disseminate and you can make these payouts much more efficient and those costs and benefits will be passed on to customers. Yeah. So like for those who are listening to like uh, give you a little vocabulary lesson, parametric is just just means choosing parameters, right? Parametric insurance is insurance that pays if a particular parameter or particular thing happens. Insurance broadly written, like directors and officers insurance, it's much messier. It's uh, it's hard to parameterize everything. But if you take something like a forest fire, you can use, what's it called? I mean, you can use drones that suck up data and use photogrammetry to sort of make, to create sort of deterministic conclusions about the state of a thing in the real world. You can then feed that into a smart contract which says like if a certain parameter, if a certain thing happens, payment will be made. Now that's an instance where it might actually be useful to have crypto involved because you can then have this digital asset that's paid instantly. I, you know, I spent many years suing insurance companies for not paying claims. And, uh, you know, if you can remove the need for human judgment and you can make payments based on data and you can also create contracts that can't be changed by some dipshit claims adjuster after the fact you can do you can that's that's an interesting change same thing like life insurance policies you know one of the things that is entirely deterministic from the standpoint of uh figuring out it did it happen or not is whether you're dead yeah. <laughs> and now things like you know were certain conditions satisfied you know maybe maybe not but Wow. insurance policies there's there's maybe there would be a good reason for insurance policies to pay automatically when someone died most insurance policies have something called a, a non-contestability clause like generally speaking insurance policies don't cover death by suicide with, within a certain period of time but in many states if not most states in the united states if the death happens with, uh, after two years or maybe it's after a year it depends on the state that's not something that could be contested so imagine life insurance policies that read, I hate the term Oracle because it's the opposite of what an Oracle actually is, which is a trusted data source. It's transparent, whereas Oracles gave information based on some right. sort of mystical understanding of the state of the world. But anyway, a you know, life insurance policy, a life insurance company that listened for public data from trusted data sources and 
boom, you're dead. Your beneficiaries automatically get paid. Completely transformative. It would get rid of uh, a lot of jobs and we'd probably be the better for it. You can also see that in the world of semi-autonomous and autonomous vehicles, which is where we're going to be in 20 or 30 years. Human drivers are going to be an exception rather than the rule. Cars will have a tremendous amount of data that will allow for things like insurance policies to be paid automatically. That's a great use case for blockchains and so-called smart contracts because you'll be able to create a thing that can't be changed by an insurance policy. It will hear data. Uh, there will be nobody with root access to the contract. It'll exist in the world. State will be, you know, state will be known through uh, technology and payments can be made automatically. Like imagine that. Imagine if you didn't have to go through claims adjustment. So I, I personally, that to me is really interesting and is the future. And maybe one of the impacts of, you know, regulatory enforcement or crackdown is that, you know, much of which is unwarranted and it's overreach. Don't send me angry emails or, or letters or leave me angry notes behind the dumpster on Veers Mill Road. But maybe we'll see some product innovation too. Yeah, I hope so. And it was always funny to me when Binance left Canada, how many people reached out to me or commented on Twitter that Canada's screwed and we've, we've got it all wrong. It's like, what are we really losing when it pertains to this new technology besides the ability to margin trade and leverage trade? Right? Like that's not what yeah. this is about. I think that's right. I mean, I... You know, it would be very bad if it were not possible to trade Bitcoin for dollars on regulated exchanges in the U.S. I think that needs to be protected, and I believe it will be in the United States ultimately. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the a lot of the things that are touted as innovative financially aren't, and they're not the highest and best use of the technology. And I'm so glad you gave that explanation of parametric insurance too and, and how it could work because I want to just dive into that one, one more layer and think like why or what would we need to see when it comes to this tie-in with the existing system to make that work? Because you, would, you wouldn't need to create your own token, but you could use say a stable coin or something to pay out those claims, but there sure. would need to be acceptance by the customer. Would you need, you need acceptance by the customer, by the insurance company. Would there be any other parties that would need, like would you need yes. government buy-in? I believe that you would. You would need in the United States insurance uh, with an exception for certain types of group help group insurance. Insurance is generally regulated by the states. So we've got 50 states, District of Columbia, Guam territories, so insurance commissioners. And insurance is very, very conservative in part because it's really old, uh, but there's a concern about consumer protection, right? So one of the roles of an insurance commissioner is to make sure that insurance companies actually have money to pay claims, right? And if they don't, they get put into receivership or liquidation. But I think there's an argument, there's an argument that I would make to an insurance commissioner uh, if the technology is well-designed that it actually, it's in the interest of uh, consumers and consumer protection to have the ability to pay claims automatically. And there may, may be some questions about the safety and security of the of regulatory assets, but those are questions that I think can be answered. And remember, some of these things are, we're talking about technology that has been developed in the last decade. Bitcoin's a little bit older, obviously, but you know the concept of a stable coin is a new thing. I don't really fault insurance commissioners necessarily for taking some time, but it should be, if the technology is uh, stable and safe, it should be something that a U.S. insurance commissioner would, uh, I think, uh, should be excited about. Mm-hmm. I know there's some jurisdictions, uh, primarily outside of the United States, where it's possible to denominate, to accept premiums in Bitcoin and to pay claims in Bitcoin and for certain types of regulatory capital to be held in crypto. Yeah, it's either... I can't remember if it's the Bahamas uh, or Bermuda, but I, I know that that is. I know that 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 has started to happen. Well, insurance seems such a good example, and I can imagine you having that insurance background and seeing something like an immutable ledger, and now you can encode the rules that you typically needed yeah. a regulator, an insurance company, a middleman. You needed all these people to enforce the counter side of that though is a lot a loss of jobs and it's unbelievable even with chat gpt how we've seen people up in arms about the potential impact it'll have on jobs same thing when the automobile came out people are so concerned with 
jobs being lost through innovation and greater efficiencies. Do you see that as being a part of making parametric smart contract insurance difficult to implement in, in reality? So the development of the combine meant that she needed fewer people to pick cotton in the fields. People did other things and didn't have to spend all day in the field in the hot sun. And of course, you could say, well, yeah, they just went inside into, you know, into factories and had miserable lives. But will it have a, will it change things? Yeah, it absolutely will. Uh, will human labor still be needed? I, I believe so. There's this great novel by Herman Hess called Magister Ludi, The Glass Bead Game. And in it, uh, I read it, I haven't read it for some time, but Hess describes a world in which labor is no longer useful and people spend all of their time on this complex game involving math and music, this, uh, this glass bead game. You know, if we could make labor, if we could reduce the labor requirements in the United States and everybody could eat and everybody could have a place to live and good health care, maybe that would then propel us to the stars. I mean... The question is not, and I, I don't think it's a, the fact that there's fear is totally understandable. And I can hear somebody saying, well, you know, you're an old white dude with a beard and you're, a, you know, got a safe white collar job. That's a completely fair response. But I think still, if we look at the broad swath of human history, we'll see technology has always involved replacements and movements. And sometimes those have been extremely painful. Take, you know, I spent a good amount of time in the Midwest near uh, what used to be coal mines in Southern Illinois. And, you know, when those things shut down, uh, terrible displacement, same thing with, you know, movement of, of factory jobs and steel mills outside of the United States or the reduction in need for labor in those things. But it doesn't mean that, uh, it doesn't mean that there isn't an optimistic end state. And again, look, I recognize, sure, it's easy for me to say that, but you, technology, you have to look at where it will take you because it's going to happen anyway. Same thing, you know, when I started practicing law, I had to learn how to use the books before I was allowed to use Westlaw. And then like I had, remember an early project where I spent two days straight in the civil courts uh, library in St. Louis. And the research that I did then I could do, that took two days and it cost a client two days of time. I could do that research in 45 minutes now, but I can take the time that I'm not spending in the library to do other things now. So I couldn't agree more. I think that's very well said because if you look back throughout history, these improvements in technology have been a net positive. We can create more energy, more kilowatt hours and less of our personal input. Yeah. And again, we, I'm confident that we have a solar system and a galaxy and a universe to explore. If we can just like stop killing each other and, you know, wasting resources, uh, fighting about stupid shit. Technology, I think, in the end, it's a net benefit. I know that's slightly off topic, but I, I think I actually, I think you kind of asked me that question. I did. And I did want to get your thoughts on chat GPT and the legal profession and what yeah. we're seeing in AI, because you, you always have an opinion. Uh, Google Docs, I know you had an opinion, Times New Roman font, as well as Fucking Arial. <laughs> so I won't dive into that one, but I would love to hear your thoughts on ChatGPT and, and what it could mean for the legal profession moving forward. Sure. And let's just talk about AI okay. more broadly writ as opposed to a particular product. So I think I mentioned this at the beginning. When I saw the World Wide Web, when I saw the, the, uh, the Mosaic browser in, I don't know, sometime in the 90s, I looked at it and I was like, okay, the world's going to absolutely fucking change. I remember telling a friend, Caitlin McQuaid, said, you're going to be able to order pizza with that, do banking. She was like, that's ridiculous. Why would anybody ever use a computer to do banking? They won't try, you know, dangerous, blah, 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 blah. I knew I was right. I knew the world would change. And when I saw, it was about a, a month ago, I was preparing for a deposition. And I, I did not ask ChatGPT to draft a brief for me, by the way. And I didn't give it any confidential information in case my general counsel or any clients are listening. But I asked it to give me 100 questions on a fairly esoteric subject, accounting topic. And in five seconds, I had 100 questions. And I used a couple of them. And yeah, I was like, I saw that and I was like, okay, the world's going to change. There's also a great, there's a great story by Stanislaw Lem, who's a Polish science fiction writer. 
who wrote a book called The Siberiad, and, and in it there's a story called The Electronic Bard, which I highly recommend. Translated from the Polish, one of the greatest translations ever. And it's about a scientist who sets out to create a an AI that can write poetry. And we are living in a friggin' Stanislaw Lem short story right now. Absolutely will change the legal profession in a fundamental way. I think it will probably make us better lawyers. It's going to reduce the need for certain sorts of service professionals. Uh, but look, I mean, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, you needed teams of people to do certain types of certain types of discovery and document review that you don't now because you can use computer systems. But you know, the amount of data we have now is also different than what we had then. Uh, but that changed law firms and it changed law firm profitability. It's beyond naive and absurd to think that the large language models and advances in AI won't do the same thing. I don't know what it's going to look like. My One of my working theories for a while is we would see maybe a trend towards deprofession, deprofessionalization is the wrong word, but uh, changing licensure requirements and certain uh, things that used to be lawyer could be uh, paraprofessionals. And you'd see development in the United States and in Canada uh, to having uh, more of like a barrister model uh, where you have highly trained, you know, highly trained specialist people who can go into court. I think in Japan, it's called a bengoshi. But as long as uh, there are human judges, you're going to need human lawyers to go into court. I mean, good luck calling that GPT at three in the morning when you're locked up in the Cass County Hoosgow. So... I saw there have been products where you can put a, a AirPod in and then ChatGPT will, will tell you what to say. Well, uh, or you know, an AI. Yeah. So as long as it doesn't give you the wrong case, I think what's useful though is look, I mean, the mistake that lawyer made in New York, you know, the, the guy who had ChatGPT write a brief for him is it's the same thing if you have a junior associate write something for you. You should probably check the cases, you know, make sure that it's, it's right. It's also like there's a difference between saying, give me 50 questions on standard of care required for a, near, a, for a cardiothoracic surgeon, you know, and saying, write me a Supreme Court brief. Uh, you know, there are the, the ability to ask the right question, create the prompt still requires education. You can't. Westlaw is amazing. It's just phenomenal. Lexus too, by the way, you know, but you got to know how to ask the question. And I think that's part of what, hey, I actually like not to sidetrack too much. That's part of the benefit of a good liberal education, liberal arts education, frankly. It's also what you learn how to do in law school. You, you don't, you don't necessarily learn answers. You learn to spot issues and ask questions. And if ChatGPT or its ilk are, you know, tools that allow us to get faster, more nuanced responses to questions, they're still not going to ask the questions for us, right? That's a, what lawyers will do, yeah. It's, that's a really interesting point because one thing I've been toying with recently is the idea when, you, when you're when you in law school, you have the facts, but you don't know the law. When you're an attorney, you have the law, but you don't have the facts. And I find there's so many instances that yeah. you see where the lawyer didn't ask all the questions they needed. They had to go back. They didn't get the facts. And to me, AI can play a huge role in helping stimulate the, the thinking process or bridging the gap. Yeah, totally. That's, I think, a... a I think a really insightful point. You learn that. I mean, I learned that in, you know, as a junior lawyer and, you know, you know, mid-level and more senior lawyers, sometimes the hardest part in drafting a brief is not the law. It's figuring out what the facts are. I worked for a guy when I first moved to DC, a brilliant, brilliant lawyer, a guy named Dave Decker. And uh, I learned that watching uh, David revise my briefs, he always like the story and how you frame the story was much more important. Actually, a lawyer I worked with years ago, has long since passed away, a guy named Irv Reitman back in St. Louis, he would write his briefs out longhand on a yellow pad without case citations. And then he'd give them to me and ask me to find the cases. Like, it was really interesting, right? Like, he knew the facts. The law part, he was like, you can find, you just find cases for that, right? Mm -hmm. so, so he would say, this is the argument we want to make. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. He would uh, he would write out the he'd write out the facts, and you know there'd be like parentheticals, like citation here, and then he would write out the legal argument, and he'd say like, go fill in the citations, find me the cases. You know, it, it could be that you have a ChatGPT that does something like that, but I just don't think, you know, we're definitely not at a place where you're not going to be able to go to the AI and say, write me a brief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I yeah, agree. Eventually, yeah. <laughs> I, I, and I think there's an opportunity there to make some sort of AI to bridge the gap between facts. I do think that's a huge problem that lawyers, not not all lawyers, but some don't ask the right questions and don't go deep enough. And, and having some assistance there could be valuable. Well, the other thing that we do, too, is we provide options. Like if you give me a fact pattern, I'm going to parse it and they're going to say, what should I do? I'm probably not going to say here are 100 options. I'm going to say, like, here are three or four things here are three or four different pathways to go down. And it could be that, you know, good software will be able to help with that decision-making or that mapping process too. I don't know. Yeah, it will be interesting. And I wanted to ask you one last question, Stephen. That is, if you could recommend any two books or what are the two books that you've recommended the most in in your life? Well, actually, one is that short story that I mentioned by Stanislaw Lem, The Electronic Bard. I think it's brilliant. I don't know. What's another really important book? I would read, can I give you a poem? I would say Ecclesiastes, Robert Frost's The Mending Wall, Elizabeth Bishop's, oh, what is that poem? The Art of Losing. That's a really good poem for a lawyer to read. Somebody, when I was starting out, and I thanked him after a, after I won a motion, my first motion, I thanked this lawyer. He probably looked like I look now, had a great beard, and he looked at me and said, you die a thousand deaths up there, kid. That's a great poem. I actually like, I'm a big, big poetry fan, but I would say, uh, yeah, Ecclesiastes, Elizabeth Bishop, and Stanislaw Lem. You can't lose with any of those. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoy our conversations. Maybe I'll turn this into a Joe Rogan and we'll do three hours, (laughs) but no, thank you, Stephen. I really enjoyed that. Thanks, man. That's always a pleasure. (laughs) 